Hi, this is Jen. In today's episode, Katie and I talk about some news stories with some pretty graphic references to child abuse. It's in the middle of the episode. So our recommendation is that you would be careful if you're around your kids when you listen to this episode, at least for this middle section. We still hope you find it informative and thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Them Before Us podcast. This is Jen Friesen, and we're joined by Katie Faust. Hey, everybody. Katie, you were just in Vancouver on a big adventure. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, it was a very fun little solo road trip from Seattle up to BC, which including like a quick coffee stop and border crossing and Vancouver traffic um, took about four hours. But I got to go up and I watched day one of them film the satirical video that we created, that we are producing, um, that is highlighting um, all the ways that big corporations, big business can violate the rights of children through their HR benefits package. So, you know, the script in essence is a girl that was created through IVF and had multiple siblings that were discarded or frozen uh, or donated to research, um, being raised by a single dad. And she's not sure if she's related to him or not. And she's really grilling the HR rep for the organization um, who uses these kinds of child violating HR benefits to boost their ESG scores. So it's really like putting the finger on big business and big businesses participation in undermining the rights of children and the social fabric related to marriage and family. So we're really excited about that. It was amazing to see um, some of it come together in terms of like actors and set and then everybody on the crew was just incredible in terms of professional standards. So very, very fun. A uh, lot of driving, but totally worth it. I remember getting to read some of the script and I was really impressed with it. I thought it was really well done. And talk, talk a little bit about the use of satire, because I think it's sort of, I guess, people who are really smart, I'm sure would say satire's always been a thing. A lot of people have always done it really well. I do think we're kind of seeing a resurgence of maybe the more Christian conservative side really utilizing satire. You know, a lot of people know the Babylon Bee kind of showed up out of nowhere. It seemed like, I don't know how many years, five years ago, and they've become extremely influential in the conversation, especially when you think about their connection, however that happened to Elon Musk. You know, I know. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's a tool, an absolute tool that I think you can and should use in a variety of different situations. Um, certainly when you're punching up, you know, I kind of was like reading an article on like the ethical use of satire and, you know, you or mockery, you know, you don't want to do that when you're punching down. You don't want to do it when you've exhausted other channels of, you know, trying to bring somebody back into line with the good, true and beautiful. But when you're talking about something that is untouchable, something that is inaccessible, um, something that is genuinely oppressive, satire and mockery are absolutely legitimate tools. I'll also say that in our parenting, uh, we think that mockery is very important when it comes to our, you know, mocking with our children the absurdity of the culture. And we don't do that directed to a person, right? We're not mocking a person. But mocking absurd and destructive ideas is actually a pretty important tool of communication, I would say, especially today. So I love that we have this high quality video that's going to be produced. Um, it is going to pair with 
our children's first HR benefits package. So we have been working on guidelines for virtuous, religious, conservative, family-centric businesses that want to use their corporate heft to protect the rights of children rather than violating the rights of children. So if anybody watches this video and goes, I have no idea, I didn't know that my company was doing this, or I didn't know that that this was happening in the business space, at the end of the video, you know, we'll have something that says, and if you want to prioritize children in your corporate benefits package, click here. So it's great because the satire is going to lead to pathway for virtuous action. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to see the completed products. And yeah, we'll have to think through. I'm not even sure how we've talked about distributing that, but we're hoping it will be make a big splash and get some some play, especially conservative Christian circles. And, you know, we talk about too, there's a lot of people that are maybe kind of in the center that generally feel like we just kind of want things to go well, people get along, good stuff to happen. Okay, great. Hey, someone wants a kid, that's fine. But those are maybe the people we're trying to appeal to as well, because they just haven't really considered the ethical issues. And when they hear about it, yeah, they care about kids. And they're like, wait, this doesn't seem right. And that will kind of bring, draw people over to our perspective. So that's pretty cool tool. We're going to shift a little bit. You had a few big articles come out in the last two weeks that we'd love to touch on. And we'll start with the Federalist one, because I just remember when I read this um, title, it does exactly what you want it to do. It immediately grabs you. It makes you think, what the heck is this talking about? Especially if you were more on the side where you're, hey, I'm fine with surrogacy. You would definitely be drawn and be like, I have to read this article because here's your title. Meet five accused pedophiles who bought kids through surrogacy. And then um, the, the subtitle says the fertility industry is handing designer babies over to men with zero vetting or scrutiny of their mental fitness or criminal history. So can you tell us a little bit about this article? Yeah, I'm interested. I, you know, I don't title most of my articles. There's a lot of things I submit as one thing and they come out another way. So I, my title was meet five pedophiles who bought kids. And they're like, meet five accused pedophiles. And I'm like, mm, they've all been in prison. They are pedophiles. They have all served time. Yeah. Maybe not before they got the kid, but after they got the kid, they were jailed. So these are people that have been convicted of crimes against children who all had kids placed with them through surrogacy. So we kind of lead off with kind of the one that had been headlining a couple months ago, which was Shane Dawson, the YouTuber who, you know, had been pretty public about his pursuit of children through surrogacy. You know, he and um, it's not Brian Adams. Oh my gosh. No, that's the 90s singer. Uh, Ryan Adams, yeah. his, his partner, you know, they made a big deal about, Hey, we have 12 embryos and you know, six are yours, six are mine. Some are boys, some are girls. Let's put barcodes on our babies. How are we going to choose? You know, so like, it was just kind of gross the way they were really flagrantly talking about the commercialization and commodification of these kids. But then Evie Magazine did a great job of detailing a lot of the very disturbing comments that he's made about children, hyper-sexualizing children, even babies, even talking about searching for child pornography images, seeing pictures of influence uh, in, infants and remarking that they are kind of sexy. I mean, like, so I go through some of the concerns with him. And of course, nobody vetted or screened him or Ryan, his partner, um, prior to these kids because big fertility doesn't care. They well, want a check. And these are rich guys who have the money to buy babies. Yeah. And to clarify this, you're not including them in the five 
because they've not been convicted of anything. Right. But these are just really disturbing, problematic things. Another example of, hey, we don't know really what these guys are doing behind closed doors. Disturbing comments. And they were able to get children without being vetted. But they're not even included in the uh, the five individuals you go into later. Yep, that's right. So then we kind of profile five pedophiles who really did acquire children through surrogacy. The first one is a very prominent, I mean, near like celebrity status psychiatrist um, in the Netherlands named Joe Eric Bjorn. In Norway. Or, yeah, in Norway. Thank you. In Norway. And he uh, he was responsible for removing children from their biological parents, highly contested. Some of them, it was very, ob well, not obvious, but highly contested that it was an ideological thing, not because the child was actually being abused. Awesome. Um, and he was involved in all these high profile cases and then had acquired two children through an Indian surrogate. And later it was discovered that he had 20,000 images and 4,000 hours of video of child sex abuse, including like, pause this if you have kids listening, but including boys masturbating each other, um, sexualized violence against children, anal sex by men with boys, or oral sex of children. I mean, like grotesque child pornography content on, I mean, years and years of content on his computer. Wow. So that happened in 2018. Um, the kids were removed. They don't actually know where the kids are. He's out of prison. Have they been returned to him? We don't know why. Because social workers tend to not be included in surrogacy cases. And so is there a CPS style agent following up with those kids? We hope so, but we don't really have the details about it. Wow. Yeah, then we talk about a German pedophile um, who I had never heard of before. I'd heard of all these other ones, but somebody from Twitter sent me this case. I'm like, wow, I had no idea. German guy paid a Russian surrogate, birthed the baby in Greece, took them back home to Germany. I mean, like when you've got this many borders and crossing this many borders involved and child protective services tend to be national or local, obviously it's going to be easy to evade detection, right? When you've got kids crossing borders, this is actually one of the things that is highly scrutinized in international adoption. If you're adopting a child and taking them across borders internationally, there's massive amounts of, you know, red tape that you have to go through because it's actually dangerous for a child to disappear across a border, but this guy's doing it in three different countries. Um, and he, brought the child home and he actually was accused of abusing that kid. Mm. Um, when the child was two and three, he had 175,000 images of pornography on his computer, um, sentenced to five years of prison, which I'm like, I don't know, you're abusing your two and three year old, you get five years in prison. I explain that sentence to me, but, and then I'm, I go on and I talk about the case that is the most, one of the most horrific cases, which is the case of Mark Newton and Peter Trung. Um, they were convicted of what the judge called the worst pedophile ring, if not the worst I've ever heard of. They got their baby through, by paying a Russian surrogate $8,000. They started to abuse the baby within days, you know, within the first week or two, the baby was born. And then they flew the kid all over the world, in essence, pimping him out to pedophile rings. In that case, the judge actually wouldn't even let the jury view wow. and hear some of the abuse because he thought it would be too traumatizing for the jury. So both of those men were sentenced to decades long sentences. Thank God the child has been removed. Will the child recover? I mean, I, I just can't even imagine the, the trauma and the 
disorientation that is going to be inflicted on that child for life. Um, We talked about an Israeli sex offender who had spent time in jail, got out and then commissioned a child through an Indian surrogate. Nobody knew, not the Israeli officials, not the Indian officials that nobody knows because nobody asks, nobody cares, nobody checks. And then it was only after he got home with the child that they realized that he was a pedophile. But because there had not been any current abuse, they had no jurisdiction. They had no justification for removing the child. So as far as we know, that child is still living in his home. Was this Um, in Israel? He took the child back to Israel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Because again, even just crossing borders in every single country has different laws or no laws about surrogacy, about having just, you know, you show up and you have a kid all of a sudden, what are they supposed to, what are they going to do? Well, and like, you're the only legal parent, like you can't, there's no other biological mother contesting, you know, paternity or, or maternity. There's no, the birth mother has contractually been severed. There's no legal way to actually establish parenthood for anyone else. So only the pedophile is the legitimate parent. I mean, it's just, it's psycho. And then we wrap up by talking about, um, there was a very, very famous case back in 2014, 2015, and it for a long time, it was the only case that people knew about surrogacy, and it was the baby gammy case. And this was the case where an Australian couple went to Thailand and commissioned the creation of children, um, two twins, to a Thai surrogate. And it was discovered that the little girl was healthy, but the little boy had Down syndrome and some other health concerns. So the commissioning parents flew to Thailand and took the girl home and left the Down syndrome boy with the surrogate to raise because she loved him. She's like, I love this baby. I'm not gonna abort him and I'm not going to abandon him and I'm going to care for him. And thankfully there was a lot of money that was raised to support his medical care. But everybody looked at this couple and were like, you selfish, you know, self-centered narcissist people who would leave your own genetic child with a, a Thai surrogate because they were defective. Well, later it was revealed that David, the dad, had served jail time for abusing little girls. And now he had a little girl in his home, you know, created through surrogacy. And at the time, the judge said, okay, it looks like the risks to little Pippa are minimal. So we don't have reason to remove the girl at this time. And she lived with him until he passed away a couple years ago. So it's just a minefield. Um we are actually putting children in harm's way in, in, in the kind of harm's way that is really the most gruesome, damaging, destructive, dangerous ways that we could put children at risk. And we're doing it at the hands of a greedy, unregulated, you know, money hungry industry that has no concerns about traffic, trafficking children across borders, um, no interest in any regulations that would require screening or vetting because it would eat into their bottom line. But that's really what we're talking about. A lot of times we think in the discussions about surrogacy, oh, this is about infertile couples having their own genetic children. Well, that happens every now and then. But this happens, well, we don't know if it's just as often because nobody's keeping track. The reality is this just opens the door to some of the worst crimes against children that we've ever seen. Yeah. It seems like the entire population of sane, rational human adults should be able to agree 
you shouldn't get to procure children, buy them, whatever. Even if you think all the technology is fine, it doesn't matter. And none of that other stuff that we talk about is bad at all. But at the very least, shouldn't we be able to agree adults should be able to, should have to pass background checks, screenings, all the same adoption best practices. Well, what's really scary is I remember learning this as someone who worked with youth. They make us take the training to be aware of um, the other adults you're working with when it comes to how adults are treating children. And one of the things they talked about is most pedophile predators will pass background checks because they're often caught for the first time in their 40s and 50s, which mm. is not to say that they weren't doing different things that long, but that they're often caught much later in life than when they were doing something. So they talked about all these different things to be aware of when you're working with youth and with other youth leaders, et cetera. But so that's scary. Like a background check in and of itself is not even necessarily the best. I mean, that's not the only standard and adoption does not stop there at all. Mm -mm. No, like you're getting references, you know, somebody's coming and visiting your home, they're looking at you. And it's not just fingerprints, like there's different, like when we went to China, we had like four different regulating agencies looking into our, our background, our history, our criminal, you know, if any, which there wasn't, thing, you know, because I got my record expunged. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you're not but a yeah, criminal. crazy. It's not just a one-time thing with adoption. There's multiple agencies that are looking into your qualifications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it makes it a lot more difficult for unbiologically related adults to get through all of those hoops if they want to do it just to hurt kids versus this people who just want to hurt kids. If they can pay the money, they can get a kid they want to hurt or make money off of. Yeah. Horrific. All right. Well, let's make a huge shift back into a really positive, uh, end on a really good positive note for the podcast. You wrote another article that you published uh, in Evie magazine, but you wrote an op-ed for them called, I paused my career to have children and it was the best decision I ever made. So can you tell us a little bit about, well, why'd you want to write it? And then tell us a little bit about what it's about. Yeah. The reason I wrote it is because I was in DC the weekend before last speaking to a variety of different student groups over the March for Life. One of those student groups was the David Network. And the David Network is just for Ivy Leaguers and a couple other kind of Ivy League adjacent students um, who are virtuous, who are highly religious, who are serious about living a moral life. But they're also kind of the creme de la creme in terms of the academic offerings of the of you know our country and when i was asking them what do you guys want to do for a career i mean they're all like well i think i'm gonna you know clerk for so and so and then move on to you know try to serve as a justice or well you know i would i want to be involved in high-tech um app development for the department of defense i mean like it was all of that kind of thing like all these and they've got the trajectory the ambition and and the connections you know that's really what i think those ivy league schools have to offer you now is networking and connections um they had they really could do whatever they wanted career-wise so the panel that i was on was all about balancing family and career and i told the story of um my choice to prioritize motherhood when my kids were young and how different it was from a high school friend of mine who had a great career and a wonderful husband um, who chose to forego children like 
specifically chose a child-free life for two reasons. Number one, save the world. Like she really felt like this is environmentally friendly to have no children, but also it would get in the way of her career. And so I told the story um, at the David Network and then I kind of opened with it in the article of how when I had just, when we had just gotten home with our youngest from China, so I was a mom, a new mom of four kids. My kids were eight, six, four, and two. I took my first road trip from Seattle to Portland, which is about a three, three and a half hour drive. And I packed them all in. Um, and somewhere like about an hour and a half into the drive, my son who was sitting right behind me in the car started to throw up. And I don't even know how it happened. Like I crossed three lanes of traffic in the pouring rain and got over to the shoulder. And by the time like the second heave was upon us, I caught, I was like catching it in my hands. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm here I am on the side of the road with four kids in the car, trying to wipe vomit off of me, off of him, you know, with like praying that the baby wipes last to get me through everything. Um, and I suddenly had this flash in my mind. I'm like, was this the right decision? Because I was going to go see my mom, thank God, because my mom always was like the relief that I needed when I had little, little kids. But I was also going to go visit this high school friend. And, you know, that was when Facebook was kind of the bigger thing, you know, more than some of the other social media channels. And um, she was posting pictures of her career and her travels all around the world. And, you know, it just looked glamorous and it looked like it was full of freedom. And it looked like she was like doing things that mattered. And she was thin and she had money and she was ha had a fulfilling career and all of that and I remember going oh my gosh and here I am on the side of the road in the pouring rain catching vomit like hmm what do you like what about that so I wrote the article about um kind of how our two lives diverged you know in my late 20s and early 30s it kind of looked like she made the right choice, right? She was free. She was prosperous. Like we were very, we had some very lean financial years for a long time. Um, I almost always only exclusively, I would say really exclusively in those years shopped at secondhand stores. We didn't own a lot. And if we needed something, we would borrow it instead of buying it. Um, it was just very financially lean. And um, her life wasn't like that her life looked like a life of abundance. But then I talked about how um, things look really different now. You know, my kids are 20, 18, 16, and 14. Um, my career is very full, taking off, ramping up. Um, and there's so much joy and so much meaning in my life. I mean, it's stuffed with meaning from the moment my kids wake up um, to you know, when we're getting ready for bed and like reading together, snuggling together, watching a movie together, I'm scratching their back, you know, as they fall asleep or whatever it is. Um, like it now is very obvious that I made the right choice, even though it was high cost, right? It's very high cost in those early years to prioritize motherhood, high cost for your body, because, you know, at one point I weighed you know, 80 pounds more than I do now. <laughs> and um, financially, there's a cost. And my career definitely had to take a more creative track than sort of the linear focus that she had. But the difference is that like, I am just getting going. And she is starting to stop 
like she's thinking about retiring. Um, but the main, main difference I see is she's had it all. She's had huge houses. She's had a gorgeous body. Um, she's been able to eat out whenever she wants. And she's, to me, it looks like she is empty. She's constantly chasing meaning. Where should they go on vacation again? How should they invest their money this time? What's the new fad diet she can pursue? What's the new book that she wants to read? What's the new TV series she's excited about? And it's just one kind of temporary fulfillment to another. Um, and it's a life of, to me, it looks like, and I, and I don't know if she would have the courage to say it, but a life of emptiness. Hmm. So that's a lot about the article. Um, and I'll stop like monologuing here, but <laughs> yeah. it was a chance to sort of process out loud or process on paper what I had said out loud at that, um, during that conversation with all those Ivy Leaguers. Yeah. Well, and you've said it, and I've heard other people say a similar idea that women can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. It doesn't, of course you can't. You can't work 40 hours a week or more and also be home with your kids full time and not miss them walking, not miss their first words, all these things. What's interesting, I mean, this is the broader conversation that is is fascinating to me, is why why is a more secular and progressive political system government so invested in women not doing what you did that's what's interesting to me if anything that should get like gen z and a millennial like if you want to stick it to the man quote unquote you like modeling your life after what you're talking about katie is the way to kind of push back against the system the culture and say no for a period of time. Well, and I had a great conversation with one of my friends. She had a career and she had felt convicted. She wanted to step back and be with the kids full time. She knew that's what she wanted to do and should do. Like that's what felt right to her. But she was talking to me saying, I'm struggling though with like being only a mom. Mm -hmm. And I just talked about a few things. So one thing is I've heard people separate childhood into these stages of like seven years. Have you heard that? It's like one to seven is very significant, interesting. And then the, you know, 14 to, I'm not very good at math. Seven to 14 is an interesting stage, but very different. And then the 14 to 21, right? Very different. And like you're saying, a lot of your kids are maybe in those final two stages that it, it's not diapers. It's not vomit in the same way. At, at least hopefully you're like, run to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. But I was saying, you're going to be a mom the rest of your life, but you're not going to be doing diapers the rest of your life. You're not going to be, you know, having to catch vomit the rest of your life. And, and I was saying someone else can do your job in this current, in this position you're in, but literally no one else can do, be you to the children you bore, be the, you, your mom, you know, to those children. So I said, think of it more as investment of time over time. And then slowly other things. And it also doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to do at home, but you do nothing. You rock the baby. You do nothing. You feed the baby. You, women, over time, you've seen so many industrious women that make beautiful things at home. They make a beautiful life for their uh, children, their husband, their friends, their family, their church communities. You know, so it, it was a really good conversation. And I think she really has. I mean, she and her husband own a few Airbnbs. They do things like that. They get to travel with their kids. And and I think she really has embraced this idea that like you don't get that time back. And that's where it's mm -hmm. good to invest for now. Yep, that's exactly right. And I, you know, what I told the 
women, especially at the David Network conferences, let it be okay that your career does not look the same as your husband's career. That the way that women do it, especially, I mean, and honestly, this economy is so perfect for these kinds of creative constructions of work for women. It allows you flexibility, it allows you to phase in more work as your children grow. It allows you to not go into the office all of the time and have some meetings over Zoom and, um, you know, that you can work from home in so many ways. But also, if you're not an online worker, kind of like my life is, Every mom that I know, at least in Seattle, because it's so expensive, every mom I know has a side hustle. They all have something. They're selling eggs or they're like hopping in an Uber, you know, driving for Uber. Yeah. I mean, like, or like a a craft business. They're on Etsy, like whatever it is, or they're working part-time as, you know, doing financial consulting or payment services or whatever it is, like marketing over the phone. I mean, there's so many ways that as your children mature or as your schedule allows, you can fill in with some creative work that still allows you to be at home with your kids, which, you know, over 50% of women say that is what they want. Like 53% of women, when they've said, if you had the freedom, what would you want? And most of them say, I want to be home with my kids, especially when they're young. Like there's something in there that kind of moves in us. And part of what I talked about in the article was, um, it was hard for me to give up my career. I was working at the adoption agency. I had moved very quickly up the ladder of responsibility to second in charge at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. I loved the mission. I loved the people. I liked being in the office. And when I got pregnant, I was like, I don't want to leave my job. I love working, but I want to be full-time, but I want to work full-time. I didn't want to work part-time and I didn't want to mom part-time. I wanted to do both full-time. And I was like, okay, I, I have to choose. And for me, It was a principled decision because I wasn't one of those women that was like, oh, I want a baby. I just can't wait to have a baby. I was like, who are you, kid? What are you doing to my body? Is this going to be worth it? You better be worth it. But then once she was in my arms, I was like, all righty, we can totally make this work. So it is it's an acknowledgement that there is a cost for women. Sometimes it's a hard decision to make, but prioritizing motherhood in the early years is not just critical for your kids, which it is. And we talk about that at them before us all the time. I was the only person, you just said it. I was the only person that could give my kids the mom that they need, deserved and have a right to. But on the other side, they have given me what I now see as a woman approaching 50, um, the fullest life. My life is fuller, better, more meaningful, more exciting. Uh, more joyous because of them. So like everything in life, short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, like that's what marriage and family is. When you're prioritizing it, it is a short-term sacrifice, no doubt. But the long-term harvest, I mean, you're reaping 30, 60, 100 fold. Yeah, that's great. I remember Jordan Peterson talking to uh, when people debate the wage gap between men and women and Really, when you look at the stats, if you see a man and a woman working the exact same job, the exact same amount of hours, there really is not a pay gap. But you see huge differences in the kinds of work men and women choose and engage in. And we see huge differences in how women and men want to craft those jobs. So maybe a man and a woman are both a lawyer, but the woman ends up working 
the more flexible, hey, I'm going to work at 5 a.m. and I'm going to leave at 2 p.m. because I want to be home when my kids are from school. And you might see the guy that's like, I'm going to log 100 hours. Anytime there's daylight, I'm going to be logging hours or whatever. And, and Jordan Peterson talked about law firms would love women to be partners and be up at the very top to meet whatever kinds of standards or whatever reasons. And he's like, the women do not want to stay. They get to their goal. They make partner, they, they reach whatever that apex in the career is. And then they're kind of like, is this all there is? And a lot of those women choose to leave the workforce in their late thirties, forties, whatever, because like you're saying, this is not actually the most fulfilling, whatever kind of thing. And this large percentage of women leave and then go want to pursue family. We're just saying, and you're saying reorient that to pursue family and children, especially when our bodies are physically the most able the most healthy, most able to do so. Instead, what's happening is we're on birth control for 20 years. You get to the height of your career. You decide to have kids. You get off birth control. Oh, crazy. It's I'm not able to have kids right away. And then we turn to this billion dollar industry that will try to churn out children for us. So it's all just completely backwards. Yep. We spend a lot of time talking about those male, male female differences as expressed in career, as, expre as expressed in the social fabric and other, you know, venues, and then certainly the male-female differences in the family in chapter three of our first book, Them Before Us. Um, and that's it. Empirically, you cannot make a case that men and women are exactly the same when it comes to their career goals. Women want different things. And when they have the freedom to choose, they choose to stay home. Um, you're exactly right, though, that the messages that young women are getting is you can do family later, do career first, and you need to flip it do family first, the career will be there. Um, especially because we are being, we are living longer. We're, if you know, you, you have the ability to be healthier, you can work. I mean, it's not retirement at 62 anymore. I mean, like you've got, especially women have decades of work life well beyond that. Right. Yeah, that's good. Great thoughts. Yeah. If you have any feedback, comments, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for sharing these Katie, everyone. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining the movement. Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are single, married, gay, or straight, if you are defending the rights of children, you are one of us. Thanks for joining this global movement to put them, the children, before us, the adults.